Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 177 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening show produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host and producer, and I look forward to sharing with you over the next 40 minutes updates to local garden scenes and recent articles about gardens, plants, and designers here in California and around the world. Gardens are in my DNA. I was raised in a family of gardeners, and my grandparents and mother handed down a love of flowers, of orchids, and of roses, among many other gifts. I have been an inveterate gardener for years, from that first six-pack of marigolds I bought at Home Depot in suburban Connecticut, to laying out birthday rose gardens, planting fruit trees, and rescuing overgrown and underloved gardens, as well as building my own garden library, including classic design texts and glossy coffee table indulgences. I have spent years getting to know California's Mediterranean garden landscapes, plants, and climate, even as I have fallen for English and continental garden design traditions, grown fond of the particularities and peculiarities of succulents, which perform so well in our climate, and learned to love and respect the quiet power of Japanese gardens. I've been active in local garden societies and visited botanical gardens around the world, believing not only in the benefits of gardening itself, but of being in the garden and of being charmed by that special alchemy of plants, climate, soil, design, place, and space. Gardens are a place where we can become more alive and more connected with the world we share with others. And as the good book reminds us, it all began in a garden. We start this week with an article from the Times of London by Sidoni Wilson, published on Saturday, August 20th. Balcony gardening, even a small space, can be a blooming oasis. It started with one potted marigold in 2020, and now Jason Williams's balcony garden is one of the most famous in the country. His Manchester balcony is bursting with color and life. At 35, a little lost in lockdown after being furloughed from his bartending job, Williams, a.k.a. the Cloud Gardener, embraced gardening in a big way. The lack of space outside his 18th floor flat was no obstacle to his creativity. Two years and 16,700 followers on TikTok later, not to mention the 9,500 he has on Instagram and 4,500 on YouTube, Williams debuted a show garden at the Chelsea Flower Show, where he won a Royal Horticultural Society Silver Gilt Medal to go with the RHS medal he won at Tatton Park Flower Show this year. He hasn't been a gardener for long, but he is now a horticultural star, championing tiny gardens and limited outdoor urban spaces. Completely self-taught, he says, I basically learned everything about gardening from social media. Looking for a way to cheer up his 8 
by one and a half meter patch, often blasted by wind, overlooking the Manchester cityscape, Williams started out buying plants at his local supermarket and Googling how to grow and care for them. There's so much advice out there, but it's mostly only appropriate for people with ground-level gardens, not for mine. He gathered horticultural tidbits taken from TV shows and adapted them to work in his confined space. It took a year before I felt confident in anything I was doing. I still make tons of errors. Williams has squeezed in a rose arch, a forest of plants, and even a lawn, of sorts, with an astroturf floor. And the limited space didn't get in his way when he wanted to install not one, but three ponds. Yes, ponds. They're small, they're built in plastic barrels, but they have fish, water lilies, and lettuce, and self-cleaning ecosystems. Crucially, he uses them to water the rest of his plants, as his balcony has no tap. When he, as an unknown gardener, posted a video of his pond creation, it got 3,000 views. When I wanted to try ponds, I didn't think anyone would be interested, he says. It started out as family and friends and a few people commenting on my YouTube videos. The response convinced Williams to apply for Chelsea's new section, highlighting balcony and container gardens. Two years later, I'm actually showing at Chelsea, discussing biodiversity and opening up about the impact gardening has on my mental health with the Dragon's Den investor, Deborah Meaton, at Tatton Park. Williams's balcony garden is as charming as he is and full of character. And it's not just the gardening. His social media is about the man behind the trowel. And there is, refreshingly, nothing typical about him as a gardener. He often does videos in a printed silk dressing gown with a bare chest and bonnet on top. Gardener's bucket hats, yes, but beanies too, especially thick knitted ones, even on a hot summer day. He talks a lot about how horticulture helps his depression, and this has led him to work with the mental health charity Thrive. I didn't really know about the mental health benefits of gardening until lockdown, but it's helped me so much, he says. That's why I built a platform to show people what you can do in a small space. And it's about doing his bit to encourage biodiversity. I love watching all the wildlife and pollinators that my garden attracts. If anyone with a balcony or a small outdoor space can make a little effort, think about how much impact we could have en masse. Amazingly, Williams's garden is full of caterpillars, although he says he has not once spotted a butterfly. Today, Williams has more than 100 different plants on his balcony, lots of edibles and herbs, and recently his planting has shifted to drought-resistant plants. The sea of petunias are thriving. My kiwi and passion fruit vines are going mad. Salvias too, he says. Even with the extremely dry weather we've had, strangely, I'm one of the few who currently has a green garden, he says. Williams explains that as with most gardens, before you start to build on a balcony, you must consider the microenvironment. It's at least 10 degrees warmer up here, he says. Oh, and first and foremost, the weight limit. So quite different from a standard backyard garden then. There are the more obvious factors too, such as is it south or north facing? Is it in the shade all day? Rather than planting what you want, plant for what works in your space. This is the second year that balcony and container garden category has run at Chelsea. Williams admits that he found the experience overwhelming, but he wanted to show what is possible in even the most modest space. For the Chelsea Show Garden, I only wanted to include things that I could grow successfully on my balcony at home. 
I really wanted to show people who think they don't have green fingers that they can create a garden in any size space. So is there anything you can't grow on a balcony? He answers without hesitation, sunflowers. It's too windy for the big leaves. And the flower heads snap no matter how much you stake them. It's more about changing your mindset, he says. If you can't grow something, try some alpines instead, for example. Good for dry and windy conditions. It's about trial and error for Williams. And like a lot of gardeners, he tries to spend as much time as possible tending to his balcony. It helps with my mental health, although as soon as I set up my camera and tripod, it becomes work. He doesn't like picture-perfect gardens. When you step out onto my balcony, it looks beautiful, but when you get up close, you see there are many imperfections. It's important to Williams to show that side to his followers. The truth is, everyone's garden looks a little bit of a mess. They just don't show it on social media. So, what's next for the cloud gardener? Lots of exciting things, but first he's returning to where he grew up in South London to design the show balconies for a block of flats designed for renters in Croydon. This time it's on the 34th floor, quite literally taking him to new heights. That's an article published in the London Times on Saturday, August 30th, written by Sidoni Wilson. Balcony gardening, even a small space, can be a blooming oasis. The Instagram account is at cloudgardeneruk, and the article continues. What to grow for container ponds for small spaces. What to grow include water lettuce, watercress, Chinese celery. Jason's top nine plants to grow on a balcony, tomatoes, petunias, mint, roses, strawberries, salvia, rosemary, and marigolds. From one end of the gardening world to another, our next article is A Burst of Sissinghurst, a recent column by Robin Lane Fox published on the 14th of October in the Financial Times. Robin Lane Fox revisits the Great Kent Garden and an exhibition about its famous creators. The ultimate English garden is Sissinghurst in Kent. How has it been coping with these difficult years of lockdowns and recently drought? I have been to have a look. The queue for my visit has been the opening of a small exhibition in Sissinghurst's long library. It has the beguiling title Affairs in Berlin, Harold in Germany, Vita in Love, and it runs until February 17 next year. It's fun to see if you are visiting Sissinghurst anyway. I was helped to understand it by its main coordinator, Catherine Batchelder, and by Leslie Chamberlain, who has written recently on its subjects. In 1928-29, Harold Nicholson and his wife, Vita Sackville-West, were still based at Longbarn in Sussex, where Vita was making her first garden, long since disappeared. The exhibition addresses a lesser-known side to these years and contains, for me, a surprise. As a schoolboy, I was inspired by Vita's gardening columns of the 1950s and 1960s and was motivated by them to write columns of my own. In the 1980s, I edited a selection of them, for which I read all the newspaper columns she ever wrote. I also read her garden diaries, but 
until last week, I had never heard her voice. First, I will explain what the exhibition presents. It contains no new biographical discoveries, but through books and posters, it gives an apt reminder of the couple's wide cultural and personal hinterland. Its focus is Berlin. In late 1927, Harold moved there to take up a diplomatic posting. He already spoke and read German fluently, but Vita knew German less well. At first, she stayed in Sussex, not just with her lover of the moment, Virginia Woolf, but with a project that I had quite forgotten. As a poet herself, she had been quick to recognize the genius of the poet Rilke. Soon after his death in 1926, she formed a plan to translate his German verse into English for the first time. She must have learnt some German while being schooled at home, but she was greatly helped by her accomplished cousin, Edward Sackville-West, who knew the language well. In February 1928, she went out to visit Harold, and again in August, months, I think, when her garden could cope without her. Her work on Rilke benefited. So did her private life. Berlin offered clubs and social havens for what would now be classed an LGBTQ clientele. From 1919 onward, it also had Europe's first institute for sexual science. Harold visited the clubs with his male companions, and he and Vita went to what she described as the Sodomite Ball. She also met Margaret Goldsmith, Lady of Letters, American Trade Commissioner, and wife of the Berlin correspondent of the Manchester Guardian. They had a passionate affair. As Goldsmith's German was fluent, she was a great help to Vita's work on Rilke's poetry. In 1931, she and her cousin Edward's translation of Wilkie's Duino Elegies was eventually published. It was reissued last year by the Pushkin Press, with a helpful introduction by Leslie Chamberlain. Its first publishers were Leonard and Virginia Woolf. Virginia had been Vita's lover for a while, and in January 1929 came out to visit her in Berlin. She describes the Nicholson's life as rackety. Evidently, she saw Susa Vita, not La Dolce Vita. In Vita's absence, Virginia had been finishing her own tour de force, Orlando, a love song to Vita set in many different times and eras, which never fails to entrance me. She was wary of Vita's socially superior background, and by the time the book appeared, had reasons to be wary of her fidelity, too. In 1929, Harold renounced his diplomatic career, and in 1930, the Nicholsons bought Sissinghurst Castle, then a ruin. Their garden owes a debt to French gardening of the past, all those old roses and pleached limes. Did it owe something to its German prelude? Vita had once described the view out her window as not too depressingly German. The Berlin years left no mark on its conception, varied though it was. Its German debt was to come later, with the two gardeners whom Vita took on near the end of her life. Pamela Schwert and Sybil Kreuzberger came from German families, but had long trained and worked in Britain. They became the geniuses of the place after Vita's death in 1962. The gardens were already more than 30 years old, but they carried it forward, extending its seasonal interest while caring for the Nicholson's superb planning and planting, which gave it its magic. Sissinghurst of the 1970s and 1980s reached new heights thanks to their skill and dedication. In a gardening column for October, Vita once wrote how pink and green the autumn garden was. Not bronze and blue, the colors we associate with the turning woods and the hazy distance. 
I sat in its front courtyard with its current head gardener, Troy Scott Smith, and discussed the challenges confronting it. He first worked at Sissinghurst in 1992 and has returned for a second spell as head gardener. During the lockdowns, the National Trust furloughed six of the eight gardeners and temporarily stopped Sissinghurst's 50 volunteers. When the team reassembled, their first priority was the reinstatement of an area that the Nicholsons, ever looking outward, called Delos, in honor of a visit to that Greek island. It is a big improvement, one whose Aegean flora has coped quite well with this year's dry summer. Elsewhere, the drought was a nightmare. Sissinghurst has no system of irrigation. Now in its 90s, the garden has repeatedly had to give up some of its famous former plantings. I went hoping to admire the long bed of blue-flowered daisies, Aster fricartii, which ran under the wall down the moat. Bred by a German-speaking Swiss grower, it would have been a fitting match for the library's little exhibition, but it has had to be removed. Eventually, the asters developed a killing virus. For the moment, they have been replaced by zinnias, flowers Vita also liked. No garden stands still. Scott Smith has his sights set on 2030, the centenary of the couple's acquisition of the garden. After the recent difficulties, there is all to play for. In the front courtyard, the garden used to greet visitors with dark violet petunias, fine dark red pelargoniums, and a stunning border of blues and misty purples. To one side, a big cercadephyllum tree was indeed an autumn harmony of pink and green. They have all gone by now, and Scott Smith is embarking on a reinstatement. Red-purple-leaved castor oil plants are quite wrong, he knows, in the border of blues that Schwert and Kreuzberger made magical. In the exhibition, a board invites visitors to dial 2 on a black telephone and listen to Vita answering. Fascinated, I did so, expecting to hear a patrician voice speaking down to me, perhaps with a smoky depth. Instead, I heard a crisp enunciation in a middle register. She had been recorded reading verses from her poem, The Land, which contrasts the dry landscape of Persia, one she had visited with the lovely green of England in summer. She sounded even more memorable as the gardeners outside the window were raking loads of dead brown grass from the lawn, the result of Britain's hottest summer days on record. A column by Robin Lane Fox, A Burst of Sissinghurst, published in the Financial Times on the 14th of October. Turn to a story by Georgia Lambert, published on November 6th in the Sunday Times of London, How to Grow an Organic Q-Approved Kitchen Garden. Plan a plot this autumn with these tips from the top. In 1772, King George III inherited the Q estate and combined it with the royal estate in Richmond. It was Princess Augusta, his mother, who founded a nine-acre botanic garden within its pleasure grounds. Home to the Georgian royals, Kew Palace and its kitchen gardens provided the family with breakfast, lunch, and dinner for almost 80 years until the death of Queen Charlotte, George III's consort, in 1818. The
The gardens that once hummed with life were left untouched for nearly 200 years. This year, the plot was revisited by horticulturalists at the Royal Botanic Garden Kew to create a kitchen garden that preserves the sustainable, waste-not-want-not attitudes of the past and aims to educate visitors on the greener changes they can make when planning and planting their own. With autumn in full swing, there is no better time to start, said Helena Dove, Kew's head kitchen gardener. So here is how to plan your own kitchen garden. 1. Don't dig for Britain. The first thing people should consider is their growing space. If you're like me and have a garden that is entirely lawn, instead of the old-fashioned method of digging it up and growing beds, you could use the no-dig method, she says. To do this, Dove explains, you lay cardboard over the grass to create a barrier and stop it from growing. Then lay 10 centimeters of compost over that. Wait two weeks and voila! you're ready to plant. It's entirely sustainable because you're not disturbing the turf beneath. In principle, by leaving the soil undisturbed, it will help retain the carbon rather than releasing it into the atmosphere. Kew's kitchen garden not only relies on a no-dig policy, it also relies on no-mow paths to remove the reliance on fossil fuel-intensive mowing. Instead, porous CEDEC paths were laid, and turf from old paths were reused around the rest of the gardens to fill in worn parts of grass. This permaculture design system has been used to maximize yield and minimize waste. When laying your foundations, peat-free composts, Dove says, are the most sustainable choice and contain mixtures of organic materials such as composted bark, coconut, and wood fibers, sand, grit, and perlite. Horticultural peat, on the other hand, will be banned for sale to amateur gardeners by 2024, a move by the UK government to restore 35,000 hectares of peatlands by 2025 in an effort to reach net zero. Staying clear of bagged peat is crucial to a climate-friendly garden, because when it is extracted from peatlands, the carbon stored inside the bog is released as carbon dioxide, the primary greenhouse gas that contributes to global warming. According to the Department for the Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs, peat is not only a finite resource, but its extraction degrades the state of the wider peatland landscape, damaging habitats for wildlife such as the swallowtail butterfly, hen harriers, and short-eared owls. The cost implications of choosing more sustainable materials, such as multi-purpose peat-free compost, will depend on the size of the plot. But as Dove explains, if you buy jumbo bags in bulk, that really lowers cost. And if you're starting from ground zero, the initial outlay is the compost that you will spread on your beds. Two, make your own compost. To keep costs low, everyone should compost. To get started, Dove recommends creating two composting areas. She says, although they aren't incredibly sustainable, the composting bins you can get from the council are quite good, or you can scrounge some pallet materials. Lots of people, myself included, have quite small gardens, so it's quite nice to make them vaguely ornamental. Another thing to consider is that sustainability doesn't need to be scrappy. It can be lovely, too. There are lots of bins on the market. While you can pick up an FSC-treated timber box directly from the Royal Horticultural Society for just under 50 pounds, you can make your own out of reclaimed wood sourced free of charge on apps such as FreeCycle. 
Once built, you can start emptying organic household waste, food scraps, peelings and shredded paper, etc., and things such as cardboard packaging, stickers removed, and vacuum cleanings into the bins. Keep feeding the pile with materials and gray water until the bin is full. Then put a lid on it and let it ferment into nutrient-rich compost while you start filling the other bin. For those without the space to, for composting bins, wormeries are a brilliant and efficient way to produce compost food. Other alternatives to DIY methods include sending organic waste to the council, which will compost it for you. However, as Dove explains, the more we can keep production on site, the greater the reduction in unnecessary travel. Three, plan your planting. Once the foundations have been laid, the fun can truly begin. Peer over your neighbor's hedge, Dove suggests, to gauge what they are growing because your kitchen garden success will be based entirely on what is in season and how labor and climate intensive your choices will be in practice. For example, sweet potatoes, Dove says, need a lot of heat to get started and they don't produce a lot, so it isn't a sustainable crop to grow. At Q, we've just planted out broad beans, peas, garlic, and onions, which are great to have in the garden during the winter months because they are hardy enough to survive the frosts and you get an earlier crop in May. Once the risk of frost has passed, Dove recommends planting courgettes or potatoes because they are do-gooders and produce abundantly. While broad beans can be left uncovered, Dove has to protect peas from pests with plastic netting. Netting in our industry is a big conversation point. While there are products in development that will reduce our reliance on plastic, when it comes to planting sustainably, you need to choose where to put your money. Instead of buying brittle netting that may only last a season, investing in woven netting will mean that you can reweave any holes, and it should last for 10 or 20 years without needing to be replaced. To make a protective pigeon-proof cage, you'll need posts. For those willing to wait a couple of years, Dove recommends planting a hazel tree in the corner of the garden to create your own building materials. To avoid shop-bought fertilizers, Dove recommends planting a perennial comfrey plant and making your own nutrient-rich feed by using its leaves. While it is tempting to buy plants online, make sure to buy only what you want to grow from UK nurseries or ones local to you, because the plants have been grown in similar climate conditions. If you import from Spain, you'll have to water them a bit more, and it's the same for seed choice. There are some amazing producers like King Seeds in Colchester and Real Seeds Company used by Q, she says. Toolswide, Dove swears by her second-hand buys and often visits antique shops to buy weeding equipment such as hoes because they were made to last. These sustainable choices come in tandem with other climate-friendly moves, such as investing in a rainwater butt and grouping your water-demanding plants together so you can water and grow them more efficiently. Start preparing now, Dove says, because by the time spring rolls around, the growing season will get busier. Don't expect a 100% success rate in your first year and try to enjoy and learn from the process. Anything you can add to your plate instead of relying on supermarkets will be a real delight. An article by Georgia Lambert, published on Sunday, November 6th in the Sunday Times of London, How to Grow an Organic Approved Kitchen Garden.
We close this week with an article from the New York Times. As world leaders gather in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt to discuss international efforts to combat climate change, Jordan Cushions published an article in the New York Times on November the 4th. How can a historic garden adapt to climate change? English estates are trying to maintain the heritage and identity of their grounds while also making them resistant to unfamiliar temperatures and weather. Gardens are one of England's essential iconographies, living, lasting testaments to the intimate relationship between people and nature, not to mention a kind of aesthetic mainstay. But climate change is altering everything that helps them thrive. That some of the country's most enduring gardens are facing critical threats to both their identity and their existence raises question not only of how to respond pragmatically, be it by relocating the azaleas at Cliveden House in Berkshire and replacing them with lavender, or reinvesting in the Grecian garden at Sissinghurst Castle in Kent, but of what makes a storied garden storied in the first place. Never have these questions seemed more pressing than this past summer, tied for the country's hottest on record with temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. At Oxborough Hall, a red brick estate built in 1482 for the Beddingfeld family in the East Anglian countryside, all of the grass was brown and dead and seared, not a lick of green, says Dia Fisher, the estate's senior gardener. Yet other sections of the parterre, a 9,000-square-foot French-inspired garden just beyond the manor's moat, told a different tale. First laid out for the sixth baronet in 1848, the parterre was traditionally planted three times a year to match the Beddingfeld's heraldry, a red medallion amid a field of blue and yellow. Loud and proud, says Fisher, it was a signature display of wealth. After the National Trust Conservation Charity took ownership in 1952, the cycle was scaled back to once per year. But lately, Oxford Hall has been contending with relentless heat, as well as droughts and downpours. It's a fickle combination that only a particularly hardy and resilient plant can endure, and sudden floods wash away the crisp edges of the parterre's intricate design. In response, Fisher began experimenting with new plantings, but because the garden belongs to the National Trust, she was also limited in her decisions. First, we must use the original biological material, she explains, citing Pelargonium Paul Crample, which has been propagated from mother plants at Oxford since Victorian times, and Canna Indica Indian Shot as varieties that give the parterre its red hue. If that's not feasible, we need to provide the same plant, genus, and species from another source. Then, she continues, we must provide plants that were available to gardeners of that era. If we can't do that, our final choice is to use plants that have an appearance that's in keeping with the style we're trying to preserve. That's where we are now. Things that used to grow here just won't anymore. Last year, she introduced sedum rupestre silver to four central beds in a crucial test. How would this succulent-like stone crop fare in increasingly extreme conditions? They transformed almost overnight with yellow flowers that were just humming with bees for weeks, she says. It was thrilling to witness. By August, the beds were in full bloom. By switching from annuals to perennials, the sedum, as well as alyssum, Montanum Mountain Gold, with its sweetly scented yellow, and Ajuga Reptans Brauherz and Black Scallop for their spikes of intense purple-blue, 
Fisher hopes to eventually make these beds a solid mass of vegetation, she says, filled with foliage color or flower color year-round. No more winters, where the area's characteristic light sandy soil is left exposed to the elements. No more waiting for seasons to shift to bring back life. The evergreens will also act as a carbon sink, locking in nutrients and moisture while safeguarding against erosion. As part of a four-year plan to fortify the garden, she'll also rip out box hedges plagued by fungal blight and, inevitably, moth caterpillars, both of which have thrived in the warmth, and replace them with 6,000 Euonymus japonicus microphyllus that have no known pests or diseases, for now. But is a historic garden with new flora still the same garden? A survey cited in a 2017 report by Britain's Royal Horticultural Society indicates that one in five respondents would no longer visit certain gardens if their character altered as a result of climate change. As we confront a range of disruptions to the landscapes in our lives, there is perhaps something especially distressing about witnessing sites that are, by design considered timeless, undergo transformations, except that gardens' characters are continually being altered. The modern parterre at Oxburg Hall sits on the footprint of a parterre that dates to the 17th century. Trying to replicate it would be impossible, as too many details have been lost to the ages. During World War II, the entire expanse was scrapped to make way for potatoes. Fisher still regularly finds stray spuds nestled among the ornamentals. Perhaps what makes a garden a garden is not what's planted in it at any given moment, but how it's planted. And the fact that, year after year, someone has been devoted to keeping it alive. A gardener, says Fisher, was doing what I'm doing 500 years ago. An article by Joshua Cushions in the New York Times, published on November 4th, How Can a Historic Garden Adapt to Climate Change? are snippets from the Gardener's Bed Book by Richardson Wright in November, acknowledging another failure. Failure having been my lot after several years of struggling with blueberries, I have finally concluded that growing this fruit to success is not among my gifts. I refer to those blueberries that are as big as your thumb, over which the horticultural world got hot and worried some years back. We gave them the acid soil that was required and tried to keep them damp, which amounted to reproducing a bog condition on a dry hilltop. A silly effort. And finally, the third year, when they set fruit and I watched it expand and take on color, my friends, the robins, dropped in and ate every one of them. After that, I was convinced that blueberries on this dry Connecticut ridge were never intended for my scheme of things. I put the experience down in the list of those foolish efforts on which we, as gardeners, waste time and money. Alas, that list is appallingly long. And the percentage of success. And since we are on the subject of failures, let me observe that you may know a real gardener by the fact that he doesn't mind acknowledging them. Keep on trying new things, new flowers, new vines, new trees, new shrubs. By all means, keep searching for these new experiences. 
Give a new plant at least a three years trial in various soils and locations, but don't be disappointed if you lose when you're gambling with the odds all against you. Sooner or later, you realize that there are certain things you can't grow. Sooner or later, too, you will realize that nature is appallingly wasteful. In this commercial world, a man is considered successful if he brings to fruition 50% of his efforts. Certainly, a higher percentage cannot be expected of the horticulturalist. And if ever you have owned real estate, you will appreciate the kind of tenant who, when she finally departs from the house, leaves it swept and garnished. If gardens could speak their opinions of many of us, I'm afraid they'd have scandalous things to say. Only the fastidious among gardeners really cleans up in the fall, really leaves the garden he has tenanted, in seemly order for its spring occupancy. And yet these last garden rites are so simple. They require no horticultural knowledge. Common sense and the ability to rake and run a wheelbarrow are all they demand. When I finally leave them toward the middle of November, I like to feel that if, when spring came, another gardener should have these seven acres more or less, he should remark of me, he gardened like a gentleman. Excerpts from Richardson Wright's The Gardener's Bedbook, short and long pieces to be read in bed by those who love green growing things. That wraps up edition 177 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening program produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. Please send us your comments at www.lars.org or email us at one word, laradioreading at gmail.com. Give us suggestions of gardens or stories to follow, your thoughts on a favorite story you heard or what you think about the broadcast itself. Gardens are not just plant soil and irrigation. They speak to us of the world around us, even as we try to create order and structure. They connect us to our landscape and to the cycles of nature. They teach us patience, stewardship, and fortitude. They offer possibilities of beauty and of persistence, sometimes even of transcendence. And they open our senses to both the heart and the soul, to being alive, to being connected with other gardeners, other gardens, and other times. Whether in a container or in pots on a balcony in the city, in a defined, dedicated garden area, or planted around a suburban house, or in space surrounded by trees, landscape, and open sky, gardens are precious indeed, no matter where they are. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time. Thank you.